Welcome everyone to season two, episode four of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that helps ease the pain of being dead. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder and on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. I hope you all had a horrifyingly hellacious Halloween, and I apologize. For the tardiness of this episode, because I had a bit of an uh, an episode of my own, I lost my voice for a couple of days, so I had to delay this particular final installment of Horror Palooza. I do apologize for that, but here we are at last to do this final season finale blowout episode of Horror Palooza. If you're just joining me, go back and listen to other episodes first. But if you are still jo- if you are if you're just joining me, here's what's going on. I love me some horror movies, as I hope you do as well, and what better time to indulge in these spooky, spooky movies than in October. So every year, I watch 31 horror movies. This is a common thing. A lot of people do this, but I'm doing it too. Every year, I watch 31 horror movies. I do a horror marathon, one for every day of the month, and I talk about it here on this podcast. But it's not just willy-nilly. Oh, no. I have some rules that I give myself. I have to have nothing, no movies that I've watched in the previous five years. Uh, I cannot have more than one movie of the same franchise. Otherwise, it only counts as one movie. I can only, I have to have at least three languages represented other than English. I have to have at least one film from eight previous decades, 1940s and before, 1950s, 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts. And the teens, they all have to have at least one movie from all of those decades. All the movies have to be horror movies, have to be able to defend that they are horror movies, and I have to watch them all in October. And I am recording this after October, but I can promise you, I did get all my movies watched in time. So, very happy about that. But, did I get all of my other quotas filled? Well, we're here to find out. Uh, but before I do that, I'm also letting you know that uh, this is this is about spreading the word for these horror movies. I want this is something where I'm really passionate about these movies. I try to find movies that I haven't watched before. That's why I made up the rules that I made, and hopefully there are movies that you haven't seen. And if I like them and think they're worth a watch, you guys should go check them out too, and maybe you'll like them as well. And then we all have found more movies that we like, and that's just awesome. But hit me up if that's the case. Uh, hit me up on Instagram or t- or Twitter, Surrey and Dangerous, Skinless Wonder. Let me know if I'm way off base with some of these movies or if I'm preaching to the choir and you love them as well, uh, if I found a gem that you're happy to have seen, etc. Uh, in that mode, all this season, I've been telling everyone to send me in their uh, movies that they thought were overlooked, horror movies, hidden gems that they want to get the word out on. 
And at the end of this episode, I'll be going over all the submissions I got, plus a list of 10 of my own hidden horror gems, overlooked, underappreciated horror movies, stuff for you to check out for the rest of the year until we get back to the glorious Halloween season, the most wonderful time of the year. But before we get to that, I'd like to once again thank my musical contributor, the Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. They are both on iTunes. Tiki Creeps are at TikiCreeps.com. 414 Beg is on Instagram. And thank you guys very much for helping me with the sound for this show. Of course, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc., etc., etc. Right now, we're just doing one season a year, four episodes a year in October, but there may be more content as this show continues to grow and if I get more inspired to add more episodes throughout the year. So get subscribed just in case I add something else and then you'll be notified when it goes up. Thank you for checking us out. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review, a rating. Share us with your friends so that we can grow and I can do more stuff. We are also on the Orbital Jigsaw Network of Podcasts at orbitaljigsaw.com. And if you're here for the horror, but you also like professional wrestling, I do a podcast on professional wrestling as well. It's called Busted Wide Open. And me and my co-host, Nick Howell, talk about all the news and hottest topics in the world wrestling entertainment, New Japan, Ring of Honor, etc., etc., etc. So check it out. If you are a fan of uh, the pro wrestling and the graps, or if you just want to have like a sports center style recap of what's been happening throughout the week. So back to the horror. If you're just now getting here, or if you've forgotten what I've done already, here's a quick rundown of the movies I've already watched this year. So far, I have watched Scars of Dracula from 1970, Creep from 2004, Lair of the White Worm from 1988, King of the Zombies from 1941, Autopsy of Jane Doe from 2016, Bad Moon from 1996, Hagazusa from 2017, Overlord from last year, 2018, Only Lovers Left Alive from 2014, Next of Kin from 1982, In the Tall Grass, right now it's streaming on Netflix from 2019, Possession from 1981, Carnival of Souls from 1962, Midsummer from 2019, As Above, So Below from 2014, Dig Two Graves from 2015, Cold Skin, right now on Shudder from 2017, The Lighthouse, currently in theaters and quite an experience from 2019, Slugs from 1988, Pet Cemetery, the remake from 2019, and the remake of Suspiria from last year from 2018. So, and that was a really good one. And as far as my goals, my rules, my my minimums. I have watched movies from the 40s and before, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and the teens, so I've only got to do the 50s in this last series of 10 movies to fulfill my quota of different decades. I watched a movie in German, Hagazusa, so I've got one of my three required languages other than English, but that still means I have two to go, so uh, did I get them? You have to find out. I'm about to go through all those, so uh, hopefully I got them done, yeah? Let's find out. Let's get right into it. Let's start talking about the, uh, my first movie I watched in this last series of movies. It was the 21st movie I watched. Uh, it, was not, it was the 22nd movie I watched. It wasn't a foreign language film, so it didn't fulfill those quotas, but it was from the 50s to knock out my quota for all the decades. It was The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Terrence Fisher, who did so many great 
movies for Hammer Horror Films, and this was the OG, the great OG of Hammer Horror Films. This was the one that started it all. It was their first color film, and the color is awesome in this. It is the film that put them on the path to success, and the very first pairing of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing as the monster and Baron Frankenstein, respectively. Uh, this was the story here was that Frankenstein is in jail. The Baron Frankenstein, remember, Frankenstein is the Baron, the creator, not the monster. The monster's just the monster. Frankenstein is in jail, and he is begging to tell someone about what happened to him and how he created his monster who committed all of these horrible deeds that landed him in jail in the first place. And a confessor comes to the, to the, jail and he recounts the whole story and then we flash back and the whole movie is done pretty much in flashback it is based very loosely on mary shelley's book and by loosely i mean it, it bears no resemblance to it other than the basic story of a scientist who reanimates a corpse made from stitched together bodies here old frankie is presented as a lecherous obsessive murderer whose only real redeeming qualities are his intellect and his ambition and he's pretty charming, too, because it's Peter Cushing. you got to love Peter Cushing. Now, they, they try to qualify it as him just being blind to morality due to his myopia, but it doesn't really track. Uh, like I said, Cushing is so damn charismatic. Uh, you end up liking the guy regardless, and they're not trying to make him that sympathetic of a character anyway. It's, it's more of an interesting take on the story that takes its time to get going, but once it does, it truly stands out as a superior movie of that era and a legitimate horror classic. And as far as horror movies go, it is shockingly gory for its time. I know they've restored some footage to this, but the color helps with this. You know, really bright, bright blood. Uh, people may have seen blood in this amount in, in movies around that time and, and body parts spread out as we see them here, but never all together and in such vivid color like this was really shocking for the time that it came out uh now this needed to be separate from universal's take on the book for legal reasons so we get a whole new kind of reanimation process dealing with test tubes water lots of bubbling and frothing and and mist and and there's like one stray lightning bolt as a cameo but you don't have the bolts in the neck and they're you know raising them up the tower into the lightning storm it's a very different kind of reanimation uh, where where the monster's in a tank, like a little like a water tank, like a fish tank, um, and Lee's monster looks more like a a hot topic goth or a member of a late seventies German art punk band meets Bub from Day of the Dead. Uh, looks more like that than the makeup that Jack Pierce and Boris Karloff did, with like the flat top and the big lifts and the green. And uh, anyway, he's he, Christopher Lee's. Frankenstein monster is way grosser. He's got one dead eye. He's got patches of hair and skin missing, flaps of dead tissue falling off of his cheeks. Uh, and Christopher Lee plays him like a man who doesn't quite remember how to drive his motor functions very well. So he, stay, he goes back from Universal's lumbering, from Boris Karloff's kind of lumbering around to just barely being able to perambulate. It's, it's a lot more awkward looking. Now, they originally cast Lee just because he was tall. He's 6'5". So it's a really good thing they ended up using him as Dracula a year later where he could show off a little bit more of his chops. But uh, this, was, this was his beginning right here. Uh, this is not just a timepiece curio. It's actually a good dramatic film. But just don't expect anything resembling the book or the universal classic film. 
It's just a good, chilling take on a guy who has absolutely no scruples or morals, but has been given the gift of prodigious genius. And what happens when he challenges the natural, natural order of things. Very much worth a watch. All-time classic, Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, next up, number 23, I watched, I, I was stuck on Hammer. What can I say? I watched Hands of the Ripper from 1971, uh, directed by Peter Sazdy, who also did Taste the Blood of Dracula and Countess Dracula. I love Countess Dracula, one of my favorites. It's such a solid movie, but it totally falls apart at the end, which I'm really sad to say because they were, they were doing some really interesting things here. It's worth a look if you're a fan of period chillers, you know, uh, movies that kind of raise the hair on your arm that take place during the Victorian era. But uh, it's a little too flawed to be a true classic. So the plot here is, as a young girl, she witnesses the murder of her mother by her father, who happens to be Jack the Ripper. And she ends up growing up and getting adopted by a well-meaning doctor who realizes that when she's triggered by a certain pattern of events, she goes into this murderous trance and the spirit of Jack the Ripper works through her. So this is actually shockingly well acted for a, such a melodramatic potboiler. Uh, Eric Porter, who I, I didn't know before watching this movie, and now I, he was barely in anything. Um, he's utterly phenomenal as the doctor who takes in this strange, seemingly sweet girl. And he just, he truly holds the movie together. Though I can't say the film really deserves him. He, he, I looked him up. He never did much more than supporting roles in a couple of major films, did a lot of stage acting in Britain. But he is truly a guy who should have been bigger and apparently just had a lot of personal demons that he was dealing with. But he is, he's unbelievable here. Uh, also great is his counterpoint, not really the antagonist, but he's, uh, he's this sneering eyebrow and curl lip acting guy named Derek Godfrey as this slimy parliamentarian, uh, who's just a ton of fun chewing scenery. It feels like he's in a totally different movie than, uh, than Eric Porter, but he's also, he's, he's great to watch. Um, and also Angarad Reese as the main girl, she doesn't have much to do, but go between this cow like innocence and uh, a hypnotized stupor, but she manages to be captivating regardless. This is actually the, the acting and the way, the way that the director lets his actors work. It really is engaging. And there's a lot to like about that, those aspects of the movie, but the film lets down its, in, its interesting premise and its stellar acting with an utterly garbage final act. Uh, to be fair, they had me invested I was starting to lose it, but they had me invested until the final scene where between this contrived state of peril for a main character and one of the worst practical effects I've seen in a movie this recent, like it's up there with the werewolf transformation scene in bad moon for the worst effect I saw this year. I, I completely checked out of the film. It was like watching, like I could have probably done a better shot than what they got by throwing a GI Joe figure off the top of my house. Um, it's that bad i just totally checked out of the film and up until that point i was actually intrigued by it it's it's not a great film but it's not a bad one they they linger on the moments of gore that they do have they were trying to be exploitative about it that's where hammer was in the early 70s there are a couple of shock moments that still work today so 
As far as a horror film, it still has some relevance, but it's more of a psychological thriller in the end. And even the famous hammer horror ambience and set design can't save it from a really clunky finale. So check it out if you're looking for something 70s style with a Victorian setting, but don't expect to be blown away. Again, that's Hands of the Ripper from 1971. Next up, day 24, I watched Baby Blood, also known as The Evil Within, depending on the edition that you get. Uh, I think the one you can get now on Blu-ray is actually entitled Baby Blood. Uh, That was from 1990, and it is French. So I knocked down another foreign language with this one. It is in French, although my Blu-ray did come with a, uh, a English dub audio track, but I did not watch that. I watched the French version, and this movie is mm, bonkers. This is a bonkers one. It is bizarre, but it's fun, uh, though there's a lack of narrative direction that hampers what could have been a all-time classic of weird, gory body horror. And the idea here is there's an ancient parasite that gets transported from Africa in a, a, a big cat to a circus in France in the, body, in the body of this leopard that it's in, and at which point it explodes the leopard and finds a new host, a woman who convinces, it, like she, uh, by the way, a new host, I, buy, I might add, that is impregnated by this thing in a very literal scene. A woman who convinces, it, it, it convinces once it's inside her and living in her belly, uh, it convinces her to feed it blood until it's ready to be born. So based off the premise right there, you can understand this movie goes some pretty gory places. The main character is played by Emmanuel Escarou, and she is like a living Frazetta painting of a woman. She, she spends most of the movie, like especially the first half, she spends barely dressed. And I, Frank Frazetta would have had an aneurysm if he saw this woman, she is, she is built like, uh, and like a Conan, the barbarian love interest. It's unbelievable. Uh, speaking of, speaking of Frazetta painting, speaking of painting, I hope you like gore because by the end of this movie, they are literally painting walls with it. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw the, uh, the, the captured, so the, the still I got from this movie is just her standing in front of a wall that's just been painted with gore. Uh, walls, floors, insides of ambulances, the list goes on. Blood, blood, blood. You don't call it baby blood unless you're going to show a little bit of the red stuff. This movie is bug nuts insane. And at times it gets really dark. But it also has this through line of sardonic humor, which makes for a very weird tone. Uh, Goes back and forth very suddenly. Uh, Unfortunately, And the reason I can't recommend this movie more highly is that the plot just meanders so severely. Sometimes it's hard to stay involved. Uh, Luckily, there's never never too long between moments where the red stuff is flowing in buckets. So if you do start to lose interest, just just hang out. The, The craziness is coming back. So in that sense, it is quite entertaining because she gets to the point where she's just offing people right and left without a care in the world. As apparently, according to this movie, there are just no police in France right now, uh, and she's just going wild. That being said, don't expect a satisfying ending because there isn't one. It's, it just kind of ends. But the climactic bus ride right before it is insane and awesome. So, yeah, it just kind of ended. But I was like, all right, that was crazy. Uh, I don't think this movie is very bright. I don't think the people that made it uh, really had 
too many deep thoughts or if they did they thought their thoughts were deep and they're not um i don't think it's a must watch but if you're like me and you like copious gore some gross out stuff it is definitely for us sickos uh also as i said it's french and if you like your french horror movies this is again 1990 so this is this is 10 12 years before france really went nuts with their horror movies but um, definitely a precursor to some of the madness that happened in French horror films in the mid 2000s. Um, and I mentioned that there was an English dub to this film. If you if you can't stand subtitles, there is an English dub. And the parasite who talks a lot during this movie because he's always having conversations with her and they're always talking to each other. He's played by Gary Oldman. I don't know how that worked, but yeah, Gary Oldman voiced the parasite in the English dub. So. I'm going to have to watch it again, if only for that. So, uh, Baby Blood, if you want to check that out, if, you're, if you like really, really bizarre, gory horror cinema. Day 25, I watched The Voices, and this one was under my radar. I didn't even know it had come out, and it was recommended to me by a lovely young lady, and I ended up watching it, and uh, was of two minds about it. It's uh, currently on Stars. If you have a uh, an Amazon Prime account, you can get a seven day free trial and check it out on Stars. Uh, it's directed by uh, Marjan Satrapi. Sorry if I murder your name, darling. Uh, it is offbeat and odd. That's the best thing I can say about it. It's got some charming performances, but there's a very uneven tempo and tone. Very uneven. It's enjoyable if you like the performers, but I can see why it was never a bigger deal and why it didn't get more acclaim just based on how they executed it. It's Ryan Reynolds is the main guy, uh, Mr. Deadpool himself. He plays this smiley, charming, happy guy. He lives in a happy town. He happily makes bathroom fixtures, baths, toilets, etc. in a factory. And he also has some serious mental problems, including the fact that he has snarky conversations with his dog and cat, who are also voiced by Ryan Reynolds. Uh, he's also possibly a serial killer. Uh, no, check that. He's, he's definitely a serial killer and, uh, he definitely kills some people. So that's a, it's a great premise. The fact that, you know, you have this kind of, uh, smiley, happy guy who's really a psycho, uh, and he talks to his animals and they have these, these funny conversations. That's a great setup. And there are some scenes where this premise is executed wonderfully. You got the dark comedy just to write the right amount of both sweetness and nastiness. Um, I mean, one really good uh, setup is how they've got, uh, there's like a severed head. At one point, he's keeping in his fridge, and he opens the fridge, and it just kind of happily talks back to him and counsels him on his life choices. It's good stuff. That's, that's all, uh, like, I loved how they had that, and uh, it was funny. But unfortunately, this movie is wildly inconsistent. It, it, it swings from slapstick comedy, witty one-liners, uh, funny moments like the one I was just mentioning to these dark, intense, melodramatic scenes. And sometimes it's actually even within the same scene. There were lots of opportunities here to go wild with these concepts, but oftentimes the the film opts for the easier way out or it just falls flat instead of ramping up the madness to 11, which is what I kept. Come on, just do it. And I just felt like in the hands of a visionary director, or a more inspired screenwriter, this movie could have been a classic. Otherwise, uh, unfortunately, it is at best a curio in its current state. 
Um, that being said, Ryan Reynolds, he acts his ass off in this movie. And Gemma Arterton and Anna Kendrick are two of his love interests and potential victims. And they're also game for this movie. Like Everyone's all in on this movie. And they all have fun with these quirky characters. But it just, it just never truly gels or feels like it's any one thing or that it has any consistency. Uh, the, the one conceit I felt was the most underutilized and squandered was the moment when Reynolds' character goes off of his, his meds. And for this brief moment, we see the world as it truly is, not this shiny, happy life he thinks he leads. Uh, the wacky town, the oversaturated colors of the factory he works in, even the immaculate comfort of his own home uh, could have been subverted by this reveal, and they, they touch on it. They, they kind of go there, and for the rest of the movie, we could have gone back and forth between the two worlds, having the horror of the real world revealed by, by interactions in the third act that mirror the first, showing his life for what it truly is, other characters' perception of him and of his world, seeing it through multiple different points of view, uh, subverting that smiley, happy life he leads, and I think that there is a lot of satire to, to be had there. But it, they, this, sadly, this never happens. And the half-hearted attempts that they do have to show the darkness of his life through either his eyes off the meds or through others' eyes, it's, it's inconsistent at best, and it's non-existent at worst. There were some scenes where I was sitting there watching something happening and wondering, okay, what world are we in? His world or the other world? Because I, part of it was, I think, the set dressing, the, te- the set design really undercut this movie in, in that sense. They didn't, really, they didn't really go there with anything. They kind of had uh, half-hearted attempts. They, they kind of touched on, I think, uh, the, the visual uh, ideas that they were going for, but they didn't go all in. There's also a moment where he hits a deer with his car, and the dying deer is, is in the window, and it, it also speaks to him in Reynolds' voice. And it's actually kind of funny, this black humor, it, it hilariously begs for its own death. But only that deer and his two pets have voices, uh, the heads, but that's, you know, why I don't know why the trope of Reynolds voicing other creatures or even perhaps inanimate objects why wasn't that expanded on more uh why wasn't it made more wacky i think they had a lot of opportunities there that they didn't go for as well um there's a lot of missed opportunities lots of places where i said you could have made this a lot more hilarious satirical dark uh creepy whatever and it just it just never went there so and it has periods where the plot slows to a crawl but Overall, I'll admit it, this movie is entertaining, and it's mostly due to the charisma of its cast, which is a knockout cast. But unfortunately, it is, at the end of the day, nothing more than an eccentric curio. Uh, And that's The Voices. Uh, Day 26, I watched Bug, which you can rent on iTunes from 2006, and the director is Mr. Exorcist himself, Mr. French Connection, William Friedkin. And I've been interested in this movie for a while. I kept hearing it had a great Ashley Judd performance. And, and come on, it's directed by William Goddamn Freakin'. I did not know, however, 
that Michael Shannon is the other lead, and he's also amazing, and it also has Harry Connick Jr. playing uh, Ashley Judd's psycho ex-husband, which I always love when Harry Connick Jr. goes dark, because I remember back when Copycat came out, because I'm ancient, and people first saw wholesome, talented, sweetheart Harry Connick Jr. playing an absolute psychotic nut job, and it's so much fun, uh, and he's great at it. So, okay, this movie's about a down-on-her-luck woman getting drawn into the world of this man who's suffering from paranoid delusions and conspiracy theories. Primarily, these are centered around bugs biting him and living under his skin as a result of government experiments. experiments. Basically, it's a textbook extrapolation of folia du to its gnarliest freaking point. Uh, it goes all in. And I was wondering for a while at watching this movie if this was just a movie about, if it was just a drama about people with these horrible, sad lives, because it it's, it's pretty grim for the first half. But then Michael Shannon goes and pulls out one of his own teeth in one of the most cringe-inducing scenes I've seen this year in this marathon, and I realized why this movie is classified in the horror section. Um, so my theory is this. Uh, if you've ever seen Bone Tomahawk, which is a fantastic movie if you haven't, go watch it. But a caveat, Bone Tomahawk is a Western for 90% of its runtime. It's just a Western. But 10% of that time, it gets really, really, really hardcore horror. And Western fans aren't renting a movie to watch a guy get bisected by a bunch of cannibal Native American. Now, horror movie fans, however, will eat that shit up. Uh, horror fans don't mind having a lot of Western in their horror movies. The, the Wind just came out. The Burrowers is a great example. That being said, Western fans mind even a little bit of horror in their Westerns. That's not what they're there to see. So that's kind of how it is with Bug, where this could have been a drama, if not for the scenes of utter madness in the third act, where Michael Shannon is running around covered in blood, jabbering like a lunatic. Um, and the acting in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, Ashley Judd was praised by critics for the intensity of her performance, and I can see why. She is so incredibly grounded and believable in the first half that when her character goes off the deep end in the second half, you are completely sucked in by the rawness and the explosiveness she is able to achieve. I felt like this character was created from whole cloth uh, I've met people that this reminded me of. Like it was, it was a very, very real character, and to go to the kind of places that she went with it takes absolute acting genius. So I, I, you truly feel like you are watching two people going nuts in a room together. And look, if you've ever talked to somebody who has paranoid delusions, specifically conspiracy theory. You will get a cold chill because the dialogue in this movie is spot on in the way the characters use specificities and twist logic to make their delusions work in their dialogue. This, was, this movie was based on a stage play, and it was adapted by that play's writer into the screenplay for this film. And in many ways, it still feels very confined and very theatrical. Uh, it's more about the two characters in this small space and their interactions than anything else. Um, also, interesting note, Michael Shannon actually played the same role in the stage production 
and I can totally see why they kept him for this film. He's perfect. Um, and as for the overall tone, Friedkin himself has apparently said he wouldn't call this a horror film. This gets back to my argument earlier. He would call it a black comedy love story, which I can kind of see a little bit, though if it's a comedy, it is the blackest kind of misanthropic sort. Uh, he admitted that it would have been classified as a horror in the 60s or 70s, and I just think it falls into that category because of that third act with, with Michael Shannon. As I said, he's running around, his body's all self-mulated, he's gleaming in this strange blue bug lights, and Ashley Judd's convulsing, paranoiac monologuing. If that doesn't freak you out just a little bit, then you might need to go have yourself checked out by a doctor, preferably the kind that doesn't want to inject you full of fuck. So yeah, that was Bug. Uh, day 27, I watched Body Bags. Finally, from 1993, it's currently on Shudder, and it's directed by the man himself, John Carpenter, as well as having a segment by Toby Hooper. You know, the guy that did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Life Force, Poltergeist. No big deal. Uh, this was originally meant to be an ongoing anthology a la Tales from the Crypt. I believe it was being shot to Showtime. Uh, after the series was canceled, John Carpenter made these three vignettes into a very entertaining little movie that is great for October for that time of the year. Or if you're just a fan of 80s horror in general, even though it was a little late for that because it came in 93, total throwback the 80s style of, uh, of horror movie and I can see why it didn't do a ton of business when it came out because it would have been a little too early to have felt like a true throwback but now it fits right in so the three little segments you've got a serial killer stalking a girl on her first night working at a gas station a balding man who wants to get his hair back more than but you know he gets more than he bargained for after a revolutionary treatment and finally an eye transplant patient starts seeing and experiencing these horrific things thanks to his new eye. Um, plus, there's interludes with John Carpenter as a deviant mortician introducing the stories a la the Crypt Keeper. And look, it's got a little something for any kind of horror fan. Now, there's really not much I've got to say about this movie, except if you like 80s horror, if you like EC Comics, if you like John Carpenter, if you like horror anthologies, this is the perfect movie for you. The perfect movie for you. It's a ton of fun. Um, I had a, I had a blast watching it. it. The cast in this thing is unbelievable. You could watch it for the cast alone. If you're familiar with movies of that era, um, or just horror movies in general and just scream at all the people that pop up. You've got cameos from famous directors. Roger Corman is in this Toby Hooper himself, Wes Craven, Sam Raimi. Obviously I said Carpenter. You've got performances from Stacy Keach as the guy who's losing his hair. Mark Hamill is the uh, eye transplant guy. Twiggy plays his wife. Tom Arnold has a cameo. David Warner. Debbie Harry from Blondie is in this. David Naughton from American Werewolf. Robert Carradine from Revenge of the Nerds in a great role reversal kind of part. My man, George Buck Flower, one of the greatest character actors of the 80s. That's right. And Sheena Easton's even in it. It's, it's crazy. You keep seeing pop, people pop up and going, what are they doing in this? Now, Look, nothing in this is going to scare you too much. It's not a, quote, scary movie, although I will say Mark Hamill's performance is quite creepy. But this movie's just loads of fun. It's worth a watch if you like this kind of thing. Uh, I had a blast. Body Bags is great. Day 28, I watched Let's Scare Jessica to Death from 1971. I rented it on Amazon. 
It was written and directed by John Hancock. It is definitely a film from a different era in terms of plot, acting, cinematography, tone, scares. I actually found this movie because I was uh, looking up what movies, what people thought were the scariest movies of all time. This kept popping up on different lists. Um, So I checked it out. Look, in context, it's a fine film. It's worth a watch if you like movies of this era and style. But uh, if you're a modern horror fan and you're expecting to be freaked out, this is not the movie for you. Uh, It's about, uh, so Jessica, from the title, she's just gotten out of a mental institution and she and her musician husband and their hippie friend, they buy an old house on an island in the countryside to escape the city. But the house already has an occupant. Jessica is having a hard time telling what's real and what's not. Uh, Is it a vampire movie, a ghost story, a haunted house film, a tale of woman's descent into madness? Uh, Yes, yes, it's all of these things. And perhaps it's none of them. There's a lot you could read into this movie. Uh, there's, in, there's maybe even an allegory about female disenfranchisement. Or even it's all, it could be all a dream about someone who commits suicide only to regret it and then wants to come back. Uh, as far as the scares, it's creepy in several scenes. And the low budget and DIY style helps with that storytelling. And the acting is good throughout. Although... I, few of these actors could be considered like Hollywood in any era. Um, very much like New York theater from the early 70s. It's very measured. It's very slow. But that is part of what makes it effective when it gets to the creepier stuff. Which the best part about it is most of it's unexplained. Um, sometimes that can be a bad thing. But I don't think so here. Where it creates this sort of dreamy ambiance that keeps you wondering when it will dip into the territory of nightmare. Which it does. Um, like I said, this is not for most modern audiences, but if you're curious, if you have an open mind, it's, it's, it's a solid little film, but, uh, definitely keep in mind the era from which it comes from because, uh, it's very, very early 70s. Next up I, on day 29, I watched Eli, which just came out on Netflix. And if you've been wondering whether or not to watch Eli, well, let me tell you, it's directed by uh, Kieran Foy and, uh, this caught my eye because Netflix has that stupid thing where as you're, as you're skimming through all of the movies, they'll just start the previews. And it's, just, it's not a lot of fun if you want to run a quiet house and you get jump scared by all the previews starting on you. But I guess it's effective because it got me to watch this movie. Uh, it seemed like an interesting and unique premise. And it also seemed like it had this kind of throwbacky style and I wanted to see if they could pull it off. Could they pull it off? The short answer? Uh, yes. And no. Kinda? Uh, look, Eli is, in this movie, is a young boy. He's got severe immunodeficiency, which, so I mean, he can't be outside or he gets very sick, basically. His parents take him to a doctor with a radical new procedure that might help cure him, but he works, she works out of this creepy old house, which may be haunted, and the procedure that she's doing to him is pretty brutal and it might be making him worse. That's the basic premise, and it's a solid one. And there is a lot to like in this movie. It's best to go in knowing as little about it as possible. Like, don't watch the trailer. Just go with what I just said. That's it. So that it, can, it can take you on this ride of genre-mashing twists. Just when you think it's a body horror film, it becomes a haunted house film. Or is it a murder mystery? Or is it a family drama? Um, look, I won't spoil what else it is, but suffice it to say, you go on quite a journey. And along the way, there are some really nicely done scares and some truly creepy visuals. 
they, there's some really well done stuff in this. There's also a very strong sense that Eli himself may genuinely be in peril, which is the strongest aspect of the film, and it's the one that keeps you engaged right up until the end. The feeling that this little kid is in danger. Ugh, the end. Um, I hate to have to dis- that I have to discuss this, but it's so often where horror films that are doing so well up until that point fall apart. Look, I hate to say it, but Eli kind of falls into this category. It's not, it's not a bad ending per se, or even a frustrating one like like Hereditary, where look in Hereditary, if there had been less exposition in the last five minutes, the movie would have retained its sense of pervasive, unconquerable dread. But here, again, like with Hereditary, it isn't the plot, it isn't the performances, it's the execution. Throughout the whole film, we're playing with genre conventions, we're stripping whole concepts from other films and, and sub-tropes of the horror genre, and for the most part, they're making them their own, right? What's the, what's the famous phrase? Uh, brilliance borrows, genius steals. If you can steal it outright and make it your own, it's genius. And for the most part, they, they pull that off. Um, the ending, however, relies so heavily on conventional tropes that it's almost like it winks at us and says, get it, as it closes up, which leaves much of the horror out of the scenario because it's so steeped in previously utilized contrivances uh, that it no longer feels, they, they don't feel as fresh as they did, say, uh, I don't know, 50 years ago. And the, the flippant way that they explain these plot points underlines the laziness of the conceit so that instead of being thrilled or terrified by the outcome, it just kind of elicits a shrug and an acceptance of the trope. You just kind of go, all right, well, I guess, I guess that's what it is now. All right. Mm. So it's worth a watch for the fact that it, it's well acted. It's beautifully shot. It truly is a solid film with a lot to like. Just don't expect to be blown away. And yeah, just don't expect a whole ton out of the ending. It is worth a watch, though. Check out Eli. Uh, day 30, getting close to the end. And I have my other foreign language film. Number three from Spain, El Dia de la Bestia from 1995. And I did say that with a Catalan accent because there are from Barcelona guys who made this. But they did shoot it in Madrid. Uh, it was written and directed by Alex de la Iglesia. And I don't, I don't know why more people don't know about this utter gem. It is, first of all, I, I guess it's because it's really hard to find for one. And it never got the acclaim it deserves. But this is truly a wild, entertaining, nasty, profane, hilarious, and just outright inspired film that more people should know about. Uh, I absolute, like, diamond in the rough. This, uh, the plot is that a theologian priest discovers the date of the apocalypse, and he realizes that the birth of the Antichrist is only days away, and in order to stop it, he has to commit all the evil acts he can in the hopes of getting close to Satan and learning where and how all of this is going to happen. Now, that premise alone should perk up any horror fan's ear. The, the central concept of a sweet, innocent, has barely ever been outside priest, he's been sheltered in the church for most of his life, and he goes to the big city to commit as much atrocity and evil as he can in order to summon Satan, that's worth the price of admission alone. And it, and it pays off. Even though, even though the idea of him committing evil acts kind of dies off after the first act and the film becomes more of a, like a caper film, 
how are these wacky mismatched misfits going to pull this one off? Uh, the pl- plot stays entertaining all the way up until just about the end. And yes, yes, it does all fall apart at the end, which is underwhelming. It doesn't make little sense. But the rest of the movie is just so insane and so charmingly belligerent that by that point, you, you won't really care. And this is a film with attitude. It, you can tell it's a confident director who takes risks and knows what he likes. There is perfectly played, hilarious comedy. There's grisly horror. And there's actually some, some, some real pure sweetness to it. Beyond just the character of the priest, who's played by Alejandro Leon. Uh, if you ever watched Pan's Labyrinth, he was the doctor who was trying to help them. Uh, and he passed away tragically in 2014. But he is the centerpiece of this movie's heart. Um, they've got slapstick. There's witty banter. There's the kind of gross-out humor one would associate with brain-dead era Peter Jackson. There's a cameo from my boy Black Phillip, you know what I mean? Um, and as a bit of a metalhead myself, I was amused by a lot of the heavy metal jokes in the film. Although, you know, fascinatingly, they had nearly universally terrible examples of actual metal, including there's a scene where they go into a heavy metal club, and what's playing sounds more like a slowed-down collaboration between Depeche Mode and Skinny Puppy. Uh, but you know, there was a lot of that, that heavy metal attitude in this, and that's what was really charming to me. I was charmed by this movie. I watched this movie with a huge grin on my face. If you can find it, check it out. It's not perfect by any means, but you know what? I would love to see more appreciation thrown the way of this beautiful little forgotten gem. Check out El Dia de la Bestia, uh, recommended to me by a, by a Brazilian friend of mine who saw it when he was young and also had no idea why more people don't know about this movie just a ton of fun and finally day 31 the last movie i watched for my horror marathon 2019 girl on the third floor which just came out like a week and a half two weeks ago freshly released currently the toast of the indie horror circuit and this movie's claim to fame is it's well known in in certain circles lead actor who makes his acting debut here And that would be, of course, Phil Brooks, also known as CM Punk, if you follow MMA or pro wrestling. Uh, Directed by Travis Stevens. It was written by Stevens, Paul Johnson, and Ben Parker. And Punk himself stars as Don Koch, a very flawed man who is trying to be a better person and fix up an old, falling-apart mansion for his wife and unborn child. But, as, as things would have it, his sordid history, it just won't stay buried. And neither will the supernatural forces in the house itself. And there you have a plot for a horror movie. So it's not a good movie, but it's, but it's not a bad one either. Uh, I'll, t- I'll talk about the bad stuff first. The acting is sadly second rate at best, with the exception of Trieste Kelly Dunn as Koch's wife, who truly steals the movie when she's given a chance. Uh, Punk himself, CM Punk himself is, bless him, he's trying his damnedest. And I know this is a cheap shot, his acting is far superior to his MMA skills. Uh, however, this is quite obviously his first film, as sometimes he's mugging more than he needs to, uh, or he's too in his head to be believable. You can tell he's not entirely present. And, but here's the thing. With more experience, he really could be a fine actor. But here, his newness does show. He just needs more time in front of the camera. But I truly do think that he, he is very close to being an excellent actor. Um, The rest of the cast, however, varies between being amateurish and just being straight out painful. 
with dialogues often being the most awkward parts of the movie, either through janky editing or stiff performances. Uh, sometimes two actors who think they're in different movies and doing different styles of acting. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what kind of movie the well-meaning church lady from across the street thought she was in. Uh, I don't know where, where she was coming from. Also, the pacing is completely wonky, with the only good part being the very middle of the film when things start going seriously sideways for Don. Uh, the third act, its tempo, uh, and its logic for that matter, is just bizarre. There are also plot holes and contrivances that you could drive a semi through, but, you know, it's indie horror, those kinds of things you typically overlook. There's a lot of this that you can overlook by chalking it up to being the first time for a lot of these people and it just being indie horror. And that's where the good comes in. The cinematography is utterly gorgeous. Uh, the opening titles look like a series of moving paintings. Oftentimes, the shots are composed so that you can see multiple rooms and actors and secrets within one frame. Movement of the camera uh, sometimes can be a little bit obvious or obtrusive, but a lot of times you understand why they did it, but it's, it's very effective. The only major complaint is how they shot the dialogue scenes. They're almost head on so that you jump back and forth between two people who seem to be staring past you. Sometimes the eye lines don't match up, um, and they don't seem to be connecting with their dialogue. And the lack of two shots is strange, as there are several scenes where seeing the characters actually interact would have helped the moment. Um, also good is the thematic twist of the movie. Now, without spoiling anything, I will just say that the movie is not about what you think it's about, and the way they come to their moral at the end of the story, and let's be clear, it is indeed a moral that is hammered home quite hard. It's actually pretty strong, and it does stick the landing, albeit not very subtly. But it's there, and it's good, and I appreciated it. I appreciated what they were going for. I, I have to admit, I was regretting watching this movie about a half an hour in, but I'm glad I stuck through it to the end, as it did get better, much better. There is some truly grisly horror in the third act, there are quite a few scenes past the halfway point that I genuinely enjoyed. At the end of the day, it is not great. And I'd only recommend it to those who are looking for a strong indie film, if you don't mind some of these amateurish aspects, or those with an affinity for CM Punk who are curious to see him actually act, and not the kind of acting that you see in a squared circle. So it's a curio. Uh, it's worth a look if you're into deep dives, if, you can, if you've got the patience for an indie horror film. But if, you want, if you're more of a mainstream person, yeah, you're good skipping it. But uh, I, I thought it was an apt way to wrap up this year. That has been my marathon for 2019. The 31 for 31 marathon is complete. But I still have more show left to go because it's time to discuss some of the greatest overlooked horror movies of all time. Now, I asked you guys if you had any that you thought needed some love and attention and bless you, you gave me a ton of them. Now, to be clear, <laughs> there are hundreds, probably thousands, tens of thousands of overlooked gems, of overlooked priceless horror movies, and to list them all would take years. But here I wanted to just throw together a sampling of some movies that you guys can take away with you now that the Halloween season is over, and maybe, maybe you'll find something you haven't seen that you can watch in these interim months until it's Halloween time again. And as we all know, horror movie season is 12 months out of the year. So hopefully 
you'll hear some movies that you haven't heard of before. They'll pique your interest. You'll go find them and you'll find some new movies that you love. So let's get to the listener suggestions first and then I will list mine. I got a top 10 list and then we will all feel silly for not having watched more movies and then we'll all go watch a bunch of great movies you've never heard of before, which sounds good. 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 Great. Awesome. So let's start off with Tom Rizzo who says Saturday the 14th, which you know what? Right off the bat, he stumped me. I haven't watched Saturday the 14th, but he says it's great. It's been immediately added to my list of movies to watch, possibly for the marathon next year, unless I get to it before that. So check out Saturday the 14th, according to Tom Rizzo. Tina Sheets recommends Beyond the Door, which I also hadn't heard of. And she says she was so scared she never saw what was Beyond the Door. So that sounds like a glowing recommendation. I'll have to look for that one too. Now we get into stuff that I have seen. Greg Barron recommended Polanski's Repulsion. I don't know if that's counts as an overlooked movie because it's Polanski and I, I hear a lot of people talking about Repulsion but if you haven't seen it definitely worth a freaking look next up I've got Nick Amato who says the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956 is all at once iconic and largely forgotten is it forgotten I feel like people haven't forgotten that movie but maybe they just haven't watched it as much because anyway he says possibly because it has been relentlessly remade and is quite tamed by horror standards all right that's fair the quick pace There are no lulls, 80 minutes, and the creepy post-war anti-communist theme is still on point today. Modern movie fans also don't give enough love to Train to Busan. Yes, they do. Everyone I know loves Train to Busan, which I also think has a marvelous pace as a horror zombie action flick. It absolutely does. Train to Busan is a modern classic. I feel like a lot of people know about it. I've played it at the bar I work at multiple times, and I've had a lot of people say, I love this movie. I feel like Train to Busan has gotten the love, but probably a good call, Mr. Amato on the invasion of the body snatchers from 56 that is a truly creepy movie nick howell i wonder where i've heard that name before nick howell says the cabin in the woods i disagree that's not overlooked at all that is a modern classic but good call if you haven't seen cabin in the woods 100 percent a must watch jay park says housebound that is another one i think is very overlooked uh recently good watch check out housebound if you can find it it was streaming for a while i don't know where it is now uh gary says terror vision and the stuff two absolutely fantastic goonie 80s horror films that are definitely overlooked terror vision and the stuff are awesome i haven't seen them either in way too long maybe they'll be on the list next year because i love those freaking movies the stuff especially has some absolutely bananas practical effects justin luis vargas says in the mouth of madness i would say yeah overlooked when people list off john carpenter's movies this is one that definitely doesn't usually make the top five, and I think that that's egregious. They'll often list like Prince of Darkness above this one, and I will definitely take In the Mouth of Madness over Prince of Darkness any day. This is one of the best Lovecraftian movies that's ever been made, while not having anything to do with an actual Lovecraft story. Uh, that was one. It was one that when it came out didn't get a lot of love, but I feel like people are accepting it as a cult classic now. But if you haven't watched it, Sam Neill's awesome. In the Mouth of Madness is great. Some incredible cameos as well. Check that one out. Kat Scanlon says, The House That Dripped Blood. Yes, classic Hammer Horror Anthology. I agree. House That Dripped Blood, if you like Hammer, uh, that is prime, prime Hammer. She also recommends Baskin, which I watched a couple years ago. She says it's like Clive Barker directed Donnie Darko. It's way more. It's way more gnarly than that. <laughs> I think that's 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 taking it lightly. 
Uh, that is a really grim movie. Baskin's tough to watch. She also says, uh, rigor mortis. The only reason people gave it bad reviews is that the ending isn't spoon-fed to you. The whole movie is a highly entertaining, over-the-top roller coaster, beautifully shot and performed. If the ending is still elusive after a few hours and you really want to know, I'll give away the secret, but try to figure it out first. All right. Uh, I have not watched Rigor Mortis. Now I'll have to check it out and see if I need my endings spoon-fed to me. Uh, Bridget recommends The Blob. I don't know if she meant the, uh, the 1950s one with Steve McQueen or the 1980s one which was Shawnee Smith, which is awesome. They're both great movies. I think the 80s one is a little bit more overlooked because when people talk about classic sci-fi horror films, the blob is always brought up, but no one ever brings up the remake. And the remake is awesome. The remake is freaking great. So, yeah, the blob. Matt Southwell says, perfect creature. He stumped me. I haven't heard of this one. He says, as an Aussie dystopian vampire flick, you have my attention. So, perfect creature from Matt Southwell. Mike Caffell says he's not sure if it counts, but Annihilation. Uh, Hayden also put this one. Uh, Annihilation, I think, yeah, looking down the list, that is the most recent one that anyone said. And I feel like it definitely got slept on in the theaters, but people are coming around on it now. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, There's a lot to like about that movie. It's another one where they don't spoon feed you a damn thing. It's 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 a tough watch. It's definitely not the movie that they were promoting when they were promoting this movie when it was coming out, but it is a fantastic movie, very, very uh, gripping watch, and man, some gnarly horror stuff in that movie for sure. Not just, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. That's a, that's a great movie um, by the guy who did uh, Ex Machina, which is a great movie as well. Tracy May Wagner says, Hideous! And uh, I actually did check out Hideous recently, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a that is a goony, weird, crazy, un unsung movie. It is it's I don't know if I would call it good. It's definitely so bad it's good. There's a lot of really funny, over the top, dumb stuff in it. Uh, very entertaining though. Very entertaining movie, especially if you get drunk. So check out Hideous. Uh, I think they've got it up. Like Elvira did like a midnight movie version of it. So. If you can find it, check out Hideous. Tiffany says Jeepers Creepers. That is a that is a great one too. I don't know. I guess you could say it's underappreciated. Um, I I think it's becoming a little bit less known because it's more time has passed between when it came out and now. But it is a it is a fan. The first one especially is a fantastic one. I'm not a big fan of supporting the art of pedophiles, but uh, as the director is a pedophile, but. Um, at the same time, if you can separate the art from the artist, it is a great horror film, very nasty, and uh, I, I liked it a lot. Niles says, The Gate, classic practical effects, and genuine childhood terror. Amen to that. I did that last year. Uh, I rewatched it for the first time since I was a kid. And uh, not as scary as I remember, but I can't be- that's one of those movies you can't believe came out and kids watched it. Who let their kids watch this movie? It is great, though. I don't know. The special effects have kind of held up. They're very obviously stop motion. But uh, in terms of what, where, where they went with that movie is very much uh, original. Uh, JP says, The Descent. He says it was deep. It was dark. It was scary. I agree. It totally was. Uh, I, that and, and Dog Soldiers as a double feature of that director's horror movies is a great call. If you haven't seen either of those movies, 
Dog Soldiers and The Descent is a great double feature of just good, messed up horror. Chris Pulo says Night Train to Terror. You son of a bitch. Night Train to Terror is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my damn life. It's absolutely unconscionably awful. And maybe on that metric, if you watch it with that in mind, you can really enjoy it and call it an, an underappreciated movie. But I think that it's appreciated just as well as it should be, which is not at all. But at the same time, again, you get drunk, maybe, maybe, maybe you can enjoy it. It is truly awful and just completely out there. What a, what a, what a wild train wreck of a movie Night Train to Terror is. Mike says Ravenous. I'm assuming he means the late 90s Cannibal one, which is a really awesome movie. Uh, Stevie says Bubba Hotep. Yes, absolutely. You can always, uh, you can always give me uh, a little bit of the old Hotep action. Bruce Campbell, never, never the wrong time for that. Don Coscarelli. Uh, what a weird movie, but a lot of fun. Curtis Beck steals a couple of ones I wanted to use and says uh, Frailty, one 110% on Frailty. The only movie that Bill Paxton ever directed. Uh, great performances all around in that movie by Paxton himself. Matthew McConaughey, Powers Booth. Really just an outstanding movie, Frailty. That's one that if you have not seen, stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me right now. Just go watch Frailty right now. It's amazing. He also says The Brood, which is a fantastic Cronenberg uh, horror movie. Trick or Treat, which is, a, well, I think, the best modern Halloween movie that there is. I don't know if there's any argument on that. If you haven't seen Trick or Treat, you have to go watch it. Hard stop, period. And he also says The Crazies remake, which I actually watched last year, and I agree. That one is totally unsung. The, the remake of The Crazies is way better than people give it credit, credit for. Definitely check that one out. That's a very, very strong movie. And uh, finally, Ken says Frankenstein's Army. And totally stumps me again. I have not seen Frankenstein's Army. I've never heard of it. He posted some pictures from it. And he's totally got my attention. It looks absolutely insane. So I'm going to have to go look up Frankenstein's Army and check it out. Thank you to everyone who submitted and to everyone else. Uh, let me know if you got any... Everyone else, let me know if you got any inspiration to check out any of these underappreciated flicks. If you check them out and you like them, let me know what you think. Uh, I'm going to add my two cents now because... Uh, well, it is my own damn show, so I get to do that. So here's a top 10 list in no particular order of under-the-radar gems that you should find and check out when you get the chance. Now, as I said, some of the ones I was going to include got stolen by you guys when you submitted, but that's, that's perfect as it means I have to dig deeper and come up with some other unsung classics for you. So here we go at number 10, and this is one I watched a couple of years ago for my marathon. It's called Outcast. Now, this is the 2010 movie. It's not the 2014 Nick Cage one. That's a very, very, very big deal because the 2014 Nick Cage one, no good. The 2010 British one is hard to find, and it's really cool. Uh, it's got James Nesbitt, who was in The Hobbit. It's got James Cosmo, who is just a badass in everything. He was the, uh, the leader of the, uh, the, uh, the guys who were guarding the wall in Game of Thrones. It's got Kate Dickey, who was the mom in The Witch. She was also in Game of Thrones. It is just a, it's a really cool little, obviously low budget, but just, it's, it's got a, a tone to it. It's got a tone and a, a feel to that movie that 
I have I've seen in very few low budget movies like this. Um, sometimes the special effects can be a little bit wonky, but I thought the plot was really cool. The execution was really cool. The acting is fantastic. If you can, if you can find it, because it's tough to find, check out Outcast from 2010. Number nine, The Quiet Earth from 1985. I know, I know, it's barely a horror film. It's more like a thriller. But much this this one I thought of when I watched Bug this year. Um, thematically, I felt like it was a horror film. The horror of other people. Jean-Paul Schachter, the hell is other people. That's what this movie, I feel, is about. And it's relentlessly grim. But it, it's a little New Zealand film. I don't think it got enough love by a long shot. Really worth checking out. The Quiet Earth from 1985. Number eight, I have Horror Express from 1972. As Hammer was on the decline, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were looking for other things to do, and they went to Spain and filmed this really cool movie with Telly Savalas. Uh, This, it feels like a Hammer horror film. They basically just built a plot around the fact that the makers of this film had a train, like the set for a train, and they wanted to use it. So they just kind of manufactured a film about uh, an ancient caveman alien th- that turns people into zombies and eats their brains, and it's amazing. And some of the effects in it are still creepy today. Uh, if I play it at the bar, sometimes people get really creeped out by some of the effects that they have in this movie really unsung movie from that era if you like the hammer kind of ambiance it's really cool uh you know caveman alien zombies on the orient express kind of thing siberian express excuse me uh really cool horror express worth a look number seven i've got session nine from 2001 at the time david caruso was the biggest star of this movie uh now i think people more people might recognize peter mullen who I like to call Mother Superior on account of the length of his habit. Uh, you might know him from Train Spotting. He was the guy who said he wasn't going to die today for these bastards and Braveheart. He is also in this. It's actually a great cast all around. And it is a just a straight up creepy, creepy movie. They filmed it in an actual abandoned insane asylum. They used a lot of existing. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't change anything. They just filmed it the way that it was. And that natural ambiance and then the fact that they have a whole lot of like r- recordings playing over the top of it of uh these insane people being interviewed it's it really is chilling in an old school kind of way cannot recommend session nine highly enough total total lost hidden gem uh this one falls into the y'all probably heard of this one but more people need to watch it because i think that people just brush it off because of who's in it and when it came out. But number six, I've got 30 Days of Night. It might be my favorite modern vampire movie because no one goddamn sparkles in it. Uh, it's got, from 2007, it's got Josh Hartnett, Emily George, Ben Foster, Danny freaking Houston as one of the most badass vampire villains you're going to ever get. Uh, David Slade directed it. Um, yes, he did end up going on and directing Twilight Eclipse. But I forgive him because he also directed Hard Candy. He's been doing a lot of TV like Breaking Bad, Hannibal. And this movie is as gnarly and as nasty and as grisly as it comes. Um, yes, I know a lot of people don't like the ending, but you can bite me. I think it's fine. This, it's, 
It's awesome. I freaking love 30 Days of Night. I'm always wildly entertained by it. It is so dark and so well done. 30 Days of Night, if you have not seen it, give it a chance. It's really worth a shot. Number five, Starry Eyes from 2014. You hear this come a lot uh, up a lot on people's list of recent horror films that people need to give a look to. Starry Eyes is absolutely worth a look. It's not the most original story, I guess you could say. You kind of know where it's going pretty quick, but how it gets there will absolutely blow your mind. It's one of the better modern body horror films, and they pull off some truly just skin-crawling stuff in this movie. Um, and the, the main actress, Alexandra Essoe, is a god. She's awesome in this. I'm looking forward to seeing her in Dr. Sleep. Uh, really check out Starry Eyes if you haven't. It is, it's one of those movies that gets under your skin and stays there. Really, really cool. Number four, What Lies Beneath. Probably the most Hollywood movie on this list that I made. It's from 2000. It stars Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Did I mention it was Hollywood? It's also directed by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, you, may, you know, the guy who did Back to the Future, Forrest Gump. No big deal. But this is one where Zemeckis just goes full on Hitchcock. This could be a Hitchcock film if it weren't for Zemeckis' obvious boner for technology. He does camera shots in this movie that are not physically possible. It was in the era where he did Contact, and he just loved that, that, that mirror shot in Contact when the girl is running down the hallway and all of a sudden the camera is just in the mirror somehow. He does that a few times in What Lies Beneath, where he gets shots that just aren't possible, and they're absolutely amazing. And this movie is one where you should just go in knowing nothing about it. Don't read anything about it. Just put it on. Be like, okay, well, what is, what's this going to be? Because it's going to blow your damn mind. Love me some What Lies Beneath. Uh, very, very, very surprising movie. Uh, number three, Kill List which was on my marathon a few years ago from 2011. It was directed by Ben Wheatley. It is low budget, uh, as uh, really low budget, but is also really well done. It's one of those indie films where they pull it off and it, it really sticks with you. It is a nasty, grim little movie that doesn't let you know where it's going. You really don't have any idea where it's going. And then if you watch it the second time, you realize it totally tells you where it's going from the very beginning. It's one of those movies that's so well made, you can watch it a second time and be like, oh, son of a bitch. It was right in front of me the entire time. Definitely recommend Kill List. Uh, another one that was streaming for a while. I don't know if, where you can find it now, but if you can find Kill List from 2011, check it out. Number two, Clown. Just called Clown from 2014, written and directed by John Watts before he went and did the last two Spider-Man films for Marvel. Uh, yeah, some interesting beginnings. This is also one that, on the surface, when you just read the story, you kind of go, all right, really, that's it? But it totally goes above and beyond uh, what the premise is. The premise is just a guy finds a, a, a clown costume, and then he can't take it off. And trust me, it's so much more than that. It is so insane, and it absolutely sticks the landing on everything that it sets up. It's completely insane. I love Clown from 2014. Clowns are all the thing right now. It seems to be all clowns and witches, right? Uh, if you're into a clown movie that doesn't suck, 
Check out Clown from 2014. And finally, the big daddy for me, the one that whenever people say, what movie that I haven't seen should I watch? The one I always bring up first is from 1976, a Spanish horror film called Who Can Kill a Child? It's directed by Narciso Ibanez Serrador. It predates Children of the Corn by about a year or so, but not Village of the Damned. It was originally called Island of the Damned because it's very similar thematically. But this goes way beyond Village of the Damned. This is one of the toughest evil kid movies you'll ever watch. It just it's it's a slow build. It just slowly turns up the heat on you, and when it unleashes, it freaking goes. It doesn't hold back. And I love the explanation for what's going on. It's just grim. It's misanthropic. It's brutal. It's one of those 70s films that you just, it feels 70s the first second you put it on, but its sensibilities are timeless. And it, it really, it's going to get you. Uh, if you can find Who Can Kill a Child, I totally recommend that one. It's one of the ones that I always recommend in terms of underappreciated lost horror movies that fell through the cracks of history and that you should go check out. So now that we've gotten to the end of all of that, I hope you guys all have a whole list of movies that you can watch for the rest of the year until we meet back up here next year, unless I get a a weird itch and decide to put out an episode between now and the next Halloween season. Who knows? I might. But if not, you have a whole bunch of movies to go check out, and we can meet back up here next year. Thank you to everyone who contributed. Thank you to all of my listeners out there who have given me feedback and who've tuned into this fun little project of mine. We will be back next year with another marathon. Uh, as I said, unless I get the itch to do something in the meantime. So, right again, keep subscribed. If you haven't subscribed yet, do it. Do it right here on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google, etc. And follow me at Skinless Wonder or, or Sir Ian Dangerous on Twitter for updates. Also, check out Busted Wide Open over on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Thank you, everybody. Happy Halloween. Have a great rest of the year. And we will see you right here next time on 